Well, things are not always what they seem, are they? Many times, from a distance, something looks great. But once you get close up on it and take a more detailed look, you see that it doesn't live up to the initial hype. Uh, As I did my initial reading of this passage, I couldn't help but think of my wife's gardening attempt when we lived back in Maryland, where she planted several tomato plants. And I don't know if it was the soil, I don't know if it was the location, I I don't know what combination of factors it may have been. But here's what I do know. She planted, I think, four or five tomato bushes, and they all grew, and they all had green leaves, but I think for all of her work, I think she got like one tomato. It did not produce. Things are not always healthy like they seem. Many of us will hear about it in an attractive or a seemingly sound investment opportunity, but the stories are legion of how those types of opportunities seem to dissipate into thin air. In fact, my wife's family was once wealthy. Several generations ago, they were very wealthy, and they bought into an investment scheme back when the railroad was being introduced into Iowa, and guess what? Didn't pan out. So they became common, lowly workers. We can think of how Bernie Madoff would go do his sales pitches. And he had these impressive charts showing quarter after quarter of amazing growth and unprecedented returns. And we know the rest of the story, how he swindled billions of dollars from investors. But of course, we don't just need to look in the world of finances to see how things oftentimes are presented as being much better than they really are. We can think of the number of occasions wherein a, an elder or a deacon or a pastor who comes across so holy is revealed to be a debaucherous person. I will never forget one of the young ladies I ministered to in the chaplaincy was the daughter of a Southern Baptist deacon who got pregnant, and he drove her to a different city and compelled her to get an abortion so that he could save face. Things are not always what they seem. Many times things can look downright rosy, But when you get up close and you take a good hard look at the details, we end up seeing that many times they're actually fruitless. The horticultural imagery of bearing fruit is pervasive in Scripture. Okay, For instance, in John 15, we're told by Jesus that he is the vine and we are the branches. And if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. But apart from him, we can do nothing. And then Paul routinely writes about the significance and the importance of bearing fruit. 
So for example, in Colossians 1, he prays that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit. And of course, Galatians 5, and 23 has that beautiful description of what the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives looks like in terms of moral traits and behaviors. The teaching of the Bible is clear that God expects fruit. The bearing of fruit is a sign of life. It's a sign of health. It's a sign in spiritual imagery of having right relationship with God. And of course, fruitlessness is always a metaphor in Scripture for someone who is not responding to grace and is not living in right relationship with God. So interestingly, a fig tree bears prominently in this passage. But did you know that the imagery of Israel as a fig tree is itself prominent in the Old Testament? God routinely uses this image of a fig tree that he rescues and that he's planted and that he's tended and that he's nurtured. And then, of course, by the time you get to the prophets, the imagery turns to that of a barren fig tree as a sign or a symbol of how the people of Israel had persistently resisted and ceased showing signs of life. So this passage, in many respects, is just picking up Old Testament imagery and applying it to the immediate context because fruitfulness is required. And fruitlessness is always, always condemned. Keep in mind that this passage builds itself upon the notion of fruitlessness and the judgment that awaits fruitlessness. This passage itself, in fact, the majority of what Jesus says and does from the moment he gets in Jerusalem is directed towards the upcoming seismic shift that occurs in salvation history with his shed blood inaugurating the new covenant at the cross. Okay, There is a shift that occurs in salvation history, in human history, that is both irrevocable. Things don't go back to the way they were before. And it's irrepeatable. Okay? You can't redo what Jesus did in history in AD 33 about this time. Okay? It was an irrepeatable, irrevocable act that permanently changed everything. But specifically what it did in terms of its seismic shift is it took the kingdom of God from being primarily located in and contingent upon a very specific ethno group, the nation of Israel, and instead built it upon the kingdom that is the church, that is multinational and not tied to any one particular place. So, this passage right here serves as an eye-opening reminder of the danger 
of a nominalistic form of religion that is based upon a fruitless religiosity. It is toxic to your soul. And it will be condemned by Jesus, even as it is condemned here. The core of this passage, from verses 1 to 25, the core of it is what Jesus does at the temple. The fig tree story serves as a bracket on either side of it to sort of sandwich it to demonstrate that the fig tree itself is sort of a a lived-out parable to depict what is happening at the temple. Of the four Gospels, Mark gives the least amount of attention to the triumphal entry. Instead, his focus is on what Jesus does when he gets to Jerusalem. Notice how in verse 11 it says that he he arrives in Jerusalem, and immediately there's no more talk about the crowds, there's no more talk about them saying Hosanna. And what does he do immediately? He makes a beeline for the temple. Jesus has a mission, and it centers around the temple. From this point in the gospel, the temple itself figures very prominently in this gospel in the teaching of Jesus, and it isn't positive. His judgments against the nation are centered on the temple, and his sharp criticisms of the temple and what goes on there and what it symbolizes really do serve as a as a rally cry for all the people who opposed him for various reasons, and it solidifies their opposition to him. By the time he's crucified, even one of the people being crucified next to him taunts him for what he said about the temple. So Jesus' criticisms of the temple had made their way into the cell where this guy was being kept. Why was what Jesus said about the temple such a big deal? Well, the four T's of first century Judaism were Torah, tradition, territory, and temple. Of those four, the temple was sort of the living embodiment, the visible representation of everything that their culture and their heritage stood for. There were remnants of Solomon's temple, The temple had been rebuilt after the exile. Of course, it had been defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes. He had built an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig on that altar. But following the victory of the Maccabeans over their forces, they purified the temple and started a holiday called uh, Hanukkah to celebrate the, the rededication of the temple. And from that point the temple became the visible representation of everything about their culture that they loved. Herod the Great expanded it. It was truly a gem in their eyes. It was the thing that in their mind reminded them of all their cultural heritage, their religious traditions, their tie to the past. They were proud of the fact that they had right there, they could look at something that was even older than Rome. They're hated overlords. It was a symbol, a strong symbol of national pride. To disrespect the temple was to show disrespect to their culture, their heritage, and all their customs. And so, 
the religion of the Jews by their laws, their customs, their traditions, all of which centered around what went on in the temple. It served as a very dignified contrast with the debaucherous, gross celebrations of heathen worship. And so there were many, because Greco-Roman culture, in a very intellectual sense, prized self-restraint and dignity. And so there were a number of God-fearers, these, these Gentiles who were drawn to this very dignified, controlled religion of the Jews. And so there was, from all vantage points, the sign of something very vibrant here. You've got this building with a tradition dating, dating back a thousand years. You've got customs that are well-established, an orderly form of worship with very clear, clear moral expectations. It was thriving. Business was booming. It seemed to be a healthy tree. But, as we know, it was for the most part a fruitless tree. Now let's be fair to the first century Jews. It is oftentimes very hard for any people group, us included, to know where our faith commitments and our cultural commitments intersect and diverge. Our religion shapes our culture, and our culture shapes our religion. That's why Christianity looks different in different places. And it can be very hard to tell the difference, especially when we think that our culture values, cultural values are derived upon Bible values. So they had all these traditions and customs that they were certain were derived from the Bible. And Jesus comes along saying, they are as far from the Bible as the East is from the West. And they responded negatively. It was a very sore subject. And when Jesus applied the pressure, they let out the scream. Jesus, the light of the world, came to shed light on the darkness of their heart. And they reacted negatively. How will we react when he does the same for us? Now, in these verses, Jesus is very much acting the role of a prophet. He's filling that office to the T here. In fact, when he rides into the town on a colt of a donkey, he's fulfilling the words of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So whether it's fulfilling prophecy or acting as an Old Testament prophet, which is precisely what his actions with the fig tree and in the temple are doing. When you read his actions here about the fig tree and what he does at the temple, you really got to go place your mind back into what, the, like Jeremiah did or, or Ezekiel, you know, walking around naked with a, with a thing on, with a stone around their neck or digging a big hole and burying stuff in it, laying on their side, facing east for three, what is it, 18 months or something like that. I mean, that, those kind of dramatic actions that represent something, this is what Jesus is doing here. 
he is taking on the role of a prophet. So on the day of his arrival into Jerusalem, it's on. He immediately goes to the temple, and the first thing he does is he sizes it up. He is the master gardener coming to examine the tree. He looks around, and it says when he looked at everything. So he didn't come in there and take a quick look. You know, I, I love Fiddler on the Roof, and Tevye, he wants to see his son-in-law's new sewing machine. Remember that? I want to see the machine. And he goes inside, and he sticks his head in the door. Now he can leave. And he just took a quick, that's not what Jesus did here. He goes inside, and he lingers. He's observing. He's a careful Careful judge. And he's weighing everything. And what he sees does not please him. And so he goes home. And the next day he comes. And this is where we get the verdict of the king. In your Bible, look please at the header that it probably has in front of verse 15. It probably says Jesus cleanses the temple. Right? That's a misnomer. When you read cleanses the temple, what you get the impression of is that he is, it's dirty and it needs to be sort of washed down so that it can be restored to its rightful use. No, what Jesus more appropriately, if you wanted to do this properly, it would be, Jesus purges the temple, or Jesus shuts down the temple, really. His actions when he goes into the temple very much are analogous to what would happen if the fire marshal came in here and just called a complete stop to what's going on. Jesus is shutting things down. He's setting the stage for a shift in salvation history that does not take the temple into any account at all. The temple is about to be relegated to obsolescence, just like your iPhone 5. A little bit more significant than that, but still. <laughs> all right. He comes in, in verses 15 and 16. Many people think that the primary issue was that Jesus was angry about an exploitive financial practice. How many of you have heard a sermon about how, you know, they were overcharging people for this, that, or the other, and Jesus was mad about the corrupt financial practices of the religious leaders? You've probably all heard a thing like that, okay? Not really. He says nothing here about price gouging. In fact, if you look, he drives out those who are selling. He drives out those who are buying. So who are the buyers? The worshipers. This practice of setting up shop to sell was actually done for the convenience of worshipers because people came from hundreds of miles away and they had to present a, an animal. Think of how hard it would be to get to carry an ox with you, to drag an ox for hundreds of miles. Having to stop, I mean, it, it would be a huge burden. So they started this practice 
of providing the animals there already passed the, the priestly inspection. It was a very convenient enterprise. And this temple tax they had to pay, it wasn't some attempt at usury. It was instituted by Moses. They had to pay every year a tax to the temple just to fund the upkeep of the temple and the work of the temple. And so they had to exchange their coinage because the temple folks hated imperial coinage because it had the image of Caesar on it, which they took to be a second commandment violation. So you had to exchange it into a holy form of currency for use there. And the doves, poor people, didn't own homes. Poverty was so terrible that many people just couldn't own animals. And a dove or a pigeon was the absolute cheapest thing that the law prescribed a poor person to have. Okay? So this was a needed service. It was a service of convenience. And while you may have heard many sermons condemning the evil, capitalistic, entrepreneurial efforts of these people, well, in any economy, supply and demand coincide, and surely the consumers are just as indicted as the sellers, which is why Jesus drives them out too. And it says he wouldn't let anyone carry anything in the temple. All right. So what are they carrying? Sacrifices, gifts. If you can't carry something, you can't offer it, can you? And if you can't exchange your currency, you can't pay the required temple tax that the law requires. Jesus is shutting down the temple. While he does this, it is no longer functioning. It sits silent. No sacrifices, no temple upkeep. It's depicting a coming day when the place is left desolate. And then he explains his rationale. In verses 17, he says, I'm sorry, he says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Okay, what's this about? Jesus quotes two passages from the Old Testament here. The first is from Isaiah 56, which I want to read to you. Because it bears in directly to what was wrong. Isaiah 56 let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a draw, dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
You know what the Jews of the first century had done? They had created a massive plaza about 300 by 500 yards. And they called this the court of the Gentiles. It was the parking lot. And they had erected, we have the archaeological evidence, they had erected like fence posts at the end saying anyone from any nation who passes beyond this will be responsible for his own death. They called this the court of the Gentiles, which you will search in vain to find prescribed in the construction plans for the temple. They added it. And they set up the perimeter that kept the nations out. And it was in this courtyard where they were doing their business. Oh, Gentiles, you're allowed to come close to the temple, just not in it. And right here, right where they said they could be, is where they were selling their livestock. We have one recorded transaction where a guy sold 3,000 sheep in one transaction. That's a lot of sheep in a 300 by 500 yard area, is it not? This was supposed to be a place where everyone is welcome. And worship is so little to you people. And the nations are so meaningless to you people that you brazenly defy my word and you keep them out. And then where they might possibly offer prayer, you've taken it over with your callous business practices, utterly unconcerned about what's going on with true worship. But of course, this is par for the course for you people. All along my ministry, I've seen you people perverting the law so that way you could justify your callous deeds. Which is why the second part is also a quotation of Scripture. When he says, you've made my house a den of robbers, he's quoting from Jeremiah 7. Which is like, Jesus is reading this to them. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. A den of robbers. Jesus is not saying that the sellers are crooks. He's not accusing them of price gouging. The word for robbers is a very broad word. It's kind of like, we, we say Jesus was a carpenter, but the word in Greek just means craftsman. He could have been a bricklayer for all we know. We, we, tradition says it was a carpenter as we would think of it. 
The word is criminal. The word is brigand. In other words, Jesus is saying, you guys have turned this place into your outlaw biker bar. It's your gang hangout. It's where you guys come to hang out after you've done all your criminal misdeeds. All of you. And that's why he shuts the place down. This place is simply a den of robbers. An outlaw organization has taken up residence here and hangs out here. You people think you're worshiping, but you're not. You people think that you are saving my temple from the uncleanness of these people out here when you are the ones who have defiled it. The great irony is that they thought that they were keeping the temple pure. But the defilement that they were bringing upon the temple was such that it far exceeded Antiochus Epiphany's pig. With Antiochus Epiphany's pig, all they had to do was, you know, scrub some bleach on the walls, light a few candles, say a few prayers, voila, good as new. But here, but now, the verdict of the judge is it's game over. It's time to shut down the show. With this in mind, the, the lived-out parable of the fig tree suddenly serves as a great object lesson. Okay? On the way in, Jesus comes upon a fig tree that's full in leaf. It's beautiful to the eye. Just like that temple. Just like that nation. And he goes up and inspects something. And there's no figs. But then verse 13 does something very strange. And verse 13 has been a profound source of angst for skeptics and critics throughout history. It directly says he found nothing because it wasn't the season for figs. Now some preachers have tried to get around the discomfort of that passage by saying, oh, well, there's like this pre-fig that would have been in season. Well, then Mark's statement is wrong. If there was a fig that was in season, then Mark's statement that it wasn't the season for figs was wrong. Okay? The fact of the matter is, as uncomfortable as it may be, Jesus goes up to a tree. It's not fig season. But he condemns it for not having figs. How unfair! Isn't that unfair? How unfair for you to expect a tree to have figs when it's not fig season? It's not the tree's fault. Jesus, you're the one who made it. It's your fault. Right? Well, first of all, don't press it too hard. It's an object lesson. Jesus is giving a lesson of a people that are fruitless. But, but is there not the tendency of the human heart to want to know when the inspection's happening? In the military, oh, we love it when you're able to tell us, yeah, the CO's going to be here at 930 Because that tells us two things. It tells us when we need to be ready by, but also how long I can just goof off. We like knowing when the inspection is going to happen. Have we not been told by Jesus to be ready? Doesn't he tell some parables about the importance of being ready? 
all the time because we never know when the day or the hour is coming? Do you know the day or the hour or the moment of your death when you will stand before him and give an account? We do not. So be ready. In fact, doesn't 1 Timothy 2 or 2 Timothy 4 2 tell us to be ready when? In season and out of season. And so there is in this an ominous reality, an ominous implication. If Jesus will curse and condemn a tree, for not having fruit when he shows up to inspect, how much more will he condemn a person who has in fact been given the warning to be ready? Be ready. Now, we can say, I, I think that's kind of harsh, Ben. I mean, yeah, it may have been true for the Israelites and the Hebrews and the, and the first century Jews, but come on, we, that was the old covenant. They lived under law, and we live under grace. The thing about covenant theology is we affirm that there's something called continuity, that God works in basically the same way in the Old and in the New Testaments. So the way God dealt with his people back then is not fundamentally different than it is now. And this, of course, then explains why there are so many warning passages in the New Testament. Think of Jesus and his very clear threats to the seven churches in Revelation. I'm about to take away your candlestick. Think about all the warnings in Hebrews in 2 Peter, in Jude. Do not rest on your laurels saying grace, grace. God expects fruit. Well, what does this mean then for me? How, how, how can I have some, what are the kinds of fruit? What are the evidences of fruit that he wants of me? The same evidences of fruit that he wanted for them. And you highlight them in this passage. First, responsiveness to the call of God. This is a fruit that God wants to see when he inspects. Responsiveness to the call of God. You see this modeled in verses 5 and 6. Where Jesus basically tells them to go into the town, find a bike that's chained up outside someone's house, cut the lock, and drive away on the bike. And then if they question you, what are you doing? Tell them the Lord needs it. Doesn't that sound kind of crazy, the way I just put it? That's exactly okay. That's exactly what the disciples do. They go in, they find a donkey, it's tied up outside someone's house. They're untying it. What are you doing? The Lord needs it, and he'll bring it back immediately. All right. Responsiveness to the call of God. As you examine your life, as you think about our church, I have to tell you, I am thrilled there are so many in here who if we go to with a need, they will respond, I mean, without even batting an eye. That's responsiveness. But how about you? When God is clearly wanting you to do something, do you just sit there and moan and groan 
Do you look for every possible justification to get out of it? Or do you respond? The Lord said that he had held out his hands all day long to a stubborn and unresponsive people. Don't let that be you. Respond to the call of God. Second, delight in worship. For them, worship was simply this formalized ritual that they did. That they could observe it, quantify it, place it on the metrics of a scale. Uh, What's your income bracket? Okay, this is what you have to offer. Good, bada bing, you did it. Great, go your way. And worship meant nothing for the Gentiles, for their attitude towards the Gentiles. They shut them out completely. Worship was a burden, a financial transaction. Delight in it. Think about yourself and think about our church. It is so easy for a material people to get sidetracked with things other than approaching the throne of grace. It is so easy to be busy with everything except our principal business. A delight in worship, an insistence that this is the main thing, that is a sign of fruit because it inherently reveals a heart that is lifted off of the mundane to the heavenly realm with an eager expectation for what can only come from there. That's a sign of fruit. And then in the latter verses, we see other signs. Fervent, expectant prayer. Oh, they had their formalized prayers. They had their formal prayer times where they gathered and bowed their head and said the thing. How many of us have reduced prayer to the same thing? Do you really approach God believing that he can give you what you ask for? Or is your prayer something that you do because that's what worshipers do? Expectant prayer. Approach God because he is a living and active being who controls the cosmos. And he can give you everything. And then faith. That is the key to spiritual power. We have a hard time with that. But faith, there's a correlation between faith and answered prayer. There is. It's throughout Scripture. We don't know how it works exactly, but God honors faith and faithfulness. You see, one of the huge problems with nominal religiosity, kind of like what they had, is that you don't really ever think about the supernatural. God becomes primarily the instrument that is maintaining the cultural and social status quo. And so the prayers don't really get into God, change hearts. God, move in the world. Do you believe that God does that? Is that what you want to see? Those are signs of fruit. This is what Jesus is looking for. So, this is basically D-Day. And much of the rest of the book is centered around systematically destroying the fruitless religiosity of his day. You and I, we hate hypocrisy. We do. We hate it when we see it in the church, especially and rightly, because he hates it. Let us pursue and cultivate fruitfulness 
That is what he wants for us. That's what the apostles prayed for us. Oh, how I want to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit manifested more and more in your life and mine. Think about it in this church, how we have people right now who give so sacrificially and participate and lead so self-sacrificially with no concern for their money or their time. They just give and they serve. That is a sign of wondrous things. What is God going to do in our midst as we continue to grow that fruit? I believe he will bless it tremendously. Let us pray.